Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. How? What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. Okay, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fucksicans? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck nicks? What the fuckstables? What the fuck ups? What the fuck you pie Wall Streeters? Of course, all you what the fuck a nots. Did I ever say that? I don't even know anymore. I should get the main list, the big list, the all encompassing list of what the fuck names, but I don't have it. I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. I'm thrilled that you're here. I'm jacked up way up on coffee. Justcoffee.coop. Let's do it. I'll tell you right now, it's five in the afternoon here. Oh my God. Pow. Yes. Wow. That was a double thing. I just shit my pants. And I think I can't feel my hands. Yeah, justcoffee.coop, available at WTFpod.com. Let's get some things out of the way. I've been up since 5.30. Do, is that something I need to get out of the way? Is that, that's just something I'm telling you. My, uh, my girlfriend gets up at 5.30, and I kind of sleep, but I don't. She wakes up, and I see her get out of bed, and then miraculously, in like two seconds, she's leaving for work. It, I don't know what happens at that time. I just shut my eyes, and bang, she's saying, bye, bye. Then I'm kind of half awake, having some weird waking dreams. I had a weird dream, but hold on. Today on the show, Meryl Marco, the original writer, one of the original writers, I believe the original head writer, yes. Uh, well, she was, I'm not even going to talk about who she was. Who she is now is a very popular humorist and writer. Her new book, Cool, Calm, and Contentious, is out. We talk about that. She's hilarious. Do prepare yourself for some air conditioning. I'll say that now. Now back to my dream. I woke up in sort of a frenzy. I was performing in my dream, in my head, in my unconscious, subconscious, whatever level of consciousness I was at. I was performing in a club as big as the world for everybody in the world. I was performing and I had a bad set. There were other comics on the show. I can't remember offhand who they were, but I definitely tanked because they were looking at me like I tanked. And then I was wandering around the mall that was the world in my dream and people were giving me that uh that uh there's that guy look and i felt it i felt ostracized from the world it was painful i don't even remember someone asked me on twitter could did i, did I sell any merch usually in that situation you don't they give you the uh the sort of like charitable like hey you know good job uh, and then they kind of look at your merch like why would i want this you made me feel bad not good it was that and I, I, I tanked in front of the world. Wow, I hope that's not uh, some sort of prophetic or premonitory. Is that a word? Premonitious? I don't know. I don't know. But that was what I woke up to. Bombing in front of the world. But I'm back. I'm in it. Couple of heads ups. Couple of heads up. How do you pluralize heads ups? Neptune Theater next weekend. Black Friday, November 25th. Me. If you're coming and you want to buy the new poster by Coop, whose studio I just went down to, that was fucking cool. Going to Chris Cooper's studio, checking out the artwork, seeing the Japanese toy collection, listening to some garage rock and some other shit that he had going, and just being that big loft, being the big studio. Maybe you want a bigger garage. I need to get maybe a garage that wants house semis. Semis. Semis? Semis. Semi-hemis? Fuck it. I don't know, but it was cool meeting him. But the poster's going to be done. We're doing a printing of uh, 100. He's getting 100. I'm getting 100. So I'm going to only have 100 of these bad boys, and Coop is the shit. So if you want to buy one of those, I'm thinking 50 bucks. 
And I'll wrap it up nice. And I'm thinking in butcher paper. So if you're coming into the Neptune and you want to grab a one of the very short run of the uh, of the uh, Big Daddy Roth style Mark Marin and a Plymouth Fury poster, bring fifty bucks. Okay, I don't. You know, I'm not soliciting. I'm just telling you, I don't have one of them little little credit card swipers because I can't get one because I can't get a fucking iPhone unless I want to pay four hundred dollars more. I'm in a plan with Sprint. I'm in a hostage to Sprint. I'm a Sprint slave for another four months. So unless I want to pay $400 on top of the 400 that I would get, have to pay for the new iPhone, I'm locked into this fucking BlackBerry nightmare, this ever-seizing, ever-thinking piece of shit that I have to pull the battery out of. How is BlackBerry still in business? Because corporations are BlackBerry puppets, and they need the BlackBerry network. I don't need it. I don't even know why I have it. It was easier to type on. Fuck it. Why am I complaining for a change? I'll be at the Arlington Draft House in Arlington, Virginia, November 2nd and 3rd. That's a uh, D.C. area gig. Come on out for that. Meryl Marco here and my air conditioner soon. Coming. Prepare yourself. Prepare yourself for a, for a, a wonderful conversation. And maybe you'll feel a little chilly. Perhaps you should listen to it in a room that's highly heated. You know, I don't know about show business. I know what I'm doing doing now, but there are some things I don't understand. I got to tell you, I was just in New York City. Some of you know that. Some of you follow me. Some of you are on the pulse. I was in New York City. I went there to shoot a small part in a small movie where I played a corporate consultant. I shaved my face. I have no beard, no mustache. Soul patch, gone. Mustache, gone. Identity compromised. Isn't that odd? All it does is take me to be clean shaven. I, I look pretty good, actually. I'm, I'm pretty happy with my face. I'm glad it's still intact and not sagging. But I'm surprised at how much of our identity hangs from our faces or from our eyeglasses or our hair. I came home. My girlfriend was like, I don't know. I'm like, what do you mean you don't know? It's me. It's my whole face. I don't know. I just got used to the other one. I kind of got used to it. I missed the mustache. I'm like, it's been five minutes. You can't accept my face for my face. I just look too normal, I guess. Is that all it takes? Is that all it takes to honor the age and pain and wisdom of my life? Is that soul patch and that mustache? I say yes. God knows I've branded everything with that shit. I'm going to have to bring it back. I'm going to have to bring back the dirty soul patch and the creepy sexy mustache. So that's coming back. It's going to come back on its own time. But nonetheless, I'm in New York for a couple of days. Really just overnight. I got in, it was two nights. They put me up right across from Lincoln Center and I was exhausted. I had to get up at 4.30 in the morning, get a seven o'clock flight to get to New York and I get there, I'm wiped. It's three hours later, I just want to eat. I haven't eaten because I'm on that dumb diet. Today's my cheat day and yes, I've eaten three brownies. Someone just sent me a box of fucking brownies. Good timing on that. So Lincoln Center's right across the street and it's a perfect fall day out. I don't know, yeah, there's something about fall in the on the east coast because that's where fall exists that's its habitat is on the east coast because it's beautiful it's crisp it's clear it's just chilly enough to keep you feeling alive and i'm looking across at lincoln center now you know lincoln center houses the new york city ballet the metropolitan opera and the new york philharmonic none of those things do i ever go to ever ever never i haven't been to a ballet since i was four and i was bored then i've been to one opera and the guy who was supposed to be in it had a stand-in and he just stood there in the stand and sang for him. It was horrible. I'd never been to the symphony once. I saw Josh Bell uh, back in the day when I knew Josh Bell. And he used to hang around uh, alternative comedy a bit. But I don't know. I don't have a context for any of this shit. 
But I'm walking around. All I wanted to do was eat and bring it to my room and watch cable and maybe masturbate. That was my big plan. I'm tired. I got to get up at 5 a.m. to do a shoot. I will go. I'll find some food. I'll bring it back to the room. I'll watch some cable. I'll tell myself I'm not going to masturbate. And then I'll masturbate. And then I'll go to sleep. But then I walk over to Lincoln Center. And I'm wandering around. I'm like, dude, this is your chance. This is New York. You can impulsively immerse yourself in real deal culture, in big art, in the, in the, in the shit, man. And I'm standing out in front of like, just do it, dude. You're alone. I'm saying to myself, yeah, so what? That's okay. People go to things alone. Where else in the world can you just spontaneously go to the fucking Met? The Met is only in New York. This is it. So I go over to the Met and I go uh, up to the ticket box window. I go, what's playing? And I look at the sign. It's a, it's a Philip Glass opera about Gandhi. I'm like, oh, uh, okay. So I walk up to the box office. I say, are the tickets available? Yes, there are. Of course there are. No, there's not, I got nothing on Philip Glass, but how many people really go to the opera you know, on, a, on a Friday night necessarily? I don't know. Maybe it's packed. Who knows? But they said there's tickets. I say, you got good tickets? She says, yeah, we got good tickets. I say, how long is it? She goes, four hours. I'm like, wow. Who can I talk to about uh, maybe trimming that down a little bit? Maybe taking that in. Maybe shortening that up. I haven't got that kind of time. I got to get some rest. Thank you. That's what I said in my head. But what I said out loud was, oh, no, I can't uh, nuts. I can't do that. So then I wandered over to the New York Philharmonic and I walked up to the window. I go, what's up? Where are we at? What do we got? She said, uh, well, we got tickets. And I go, what's playing? Like as if that would matter. And she said, well, it's uh, Strauss's Don Quixote uh, and then an intermission and then Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 6 in F major. And I go, wow, that sounds like, uh, is it, how long is this performance? Is this a week? Do I have to, should I have brought uh, camping equipment? She goes, no, it's, it's just under two hours. I'm like, shit, that fits my time frame. I didn't say that. I didn't, I didn't want her to know that I was trying to fit this high art and high culture into a time frame uh, so I could get some rest. But I said, okay, I'll do it. So I paid 130 bucks for the best seat in the house. I was in the center of the orchestra, 10 rows up. From the stage. Now, I don't know anything about classical music. Nothing. I know what Beethoven is. I know who he was. I've heard a couple of things. Have no idea who Strauss was, what the history of it is, or anything. So I read the program. Don Quixote sort of a poetic, lyrical piece of music based on the story of Don Quixote. And there's an interplay be- between... There are two soloists. There's a cello, a bass cello, and a viola. A viola? Viola? Viola. Let's go with that. And the viola is Sancho Panza and uh, the bass cello is Don Quixote and they go back and forth at times. This sounds exciting in the program. Now, I, I really don't know anything about classical music, but I do know how to listen and I do know that you're, I, I'm in the New York Philharmonic. I'm at Symphony Hall or whatever it is and it's fucking beautiful and I'm surrounded by people that look like they're, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're extras in a late Woody Allen movie, one of the later ones. Just New York intellectual types. The, the, the audience of Symphony seems to fit the symphony. You know, kind of, you know, practically dressed, uh, but not too fancy. Uh, you know, a lot of women, older women, that go ahead and keep the hair gray. Go ahead and wear those, uh, those big glasses. It's good. It's good. I love it. It's earthy. It's nice. And I'm there. I'm like, don't pressure yourself. Read up on this stuff. Try to just listen. Try not to drift. Try to stay in it. So I'm sitting there. I brought a lot of cat hair on my jacket with me. And I'm sitting there and I just take it in. I don't pressure myself. I'm like, I know how to listen to music. How much do I need to know? Then the conductor comes out. There's a lot of pomp and circumstance, or at least manners to uh, to the symphony. And there's handshaking and standing and and uh, 
And a lot of respect all around, a lot of instruments, bassoons. There's bassoons, as you remember. Rain Wilson was a bassoon player. The conductor was Bernard Haytink. 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 I don't know. Old guy did it beautifully. As far as I could tell, he was a fucking ace. He was just great. But I'm just sitting there, and I'm trying to just open my mind, open my heart to this art, and it was amazing. It was just amazing. I drifted a couple of times. I thought about Don Quixote. I thought about windmills. I tried to play some music. I did not have, I just didn't know what I was listening to, but it was still music and it was still amazing. I mean, just to to see this dude, I was literally 25 feet away from this guy playing bass cello, all right? He's sitting center stage. He's just beneath the conductor. He's rocking back and forth with his bow dragging along the strings, making this wood just sing. I mean, I can feel him. I could feel him manifesting this music from his memory through his arms and his hands into the bow, the horse hairs, the resin, the gut strings, the old wood vibrating, a steady sort of cradled, magical, centuries-old vibration summoning the spirit of this piece of music that's been around for centuries and it's just pounding into my head it was it was awesome you know i did some traveling it was transcendent and then uh there was an intermission that i tweeted about being at the uh, symphony of course because i'm a modern person and then 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 there was beethoven and i don't know any of these things i don't know the piece i'm not familiar with it but it was beautiful and one thing i think that people who know classical music know is that you know, it, there's a lot of points in classical music where it feels like, well, this must be the ending. Here comes the ending. Oh, this is it. This feels like it's building to an ending. That happened like nine times. But I just let it wash over me and it was fucking amazing. And I was completely, I was completely out of myself and completely just kind of carried in this centuries old. That's what's magic about music. They summoned the spirit of, of Beethoven and dumped it into my head through all that wood and reeds and things and strings. It was amazing. It was amazing. Then there was a plod. There were four curtain calls. Definitely a good idea to close with Beethoven. Four curtain calls. Lights come up, and there's an old man sitting next to me going, where's my glove? I had the two gloves. I came in with gloves. And him and his wife are looking for the glove. That's, that's where you go. You go to the heavens on the strings and in the horns of Beethoven, and then we just plummet down to the floor looking for a glove. Where's my glove? That was a good glove. Hey, how far away could it be? <sighs> now again, Meryl Marco in my garage. It was very hot. There was an air conditioner also appearing in this interview. <laughs> I'm really good at editing now, and I never would have. I used to sit in editing when I used to work on TV shows, sit there endlessly bored, eating, drinking, pacing, watching, waiting for somebody to keep punching numbers in. Then I'd go, no, no, two more frames off. Yeah, and yeah. It's so thrilling to just take the two frames off. Well, what are you shooting? What are you doing? Well, whatever you want. Well, what are you working on? Well, I, what do you sit at home? I don't know. I, dog I, movies? I do way too many dog movies because uh-huh. they're the cast that are just sitting there. Yeah. Do you YouTube them? <laughs> if there were, if whoever'd be sitting there, I'd be shooting. Yeah, them. I have four of them, and I do a lot of footage of them because they're endlessly hilarious, and they're always staring at me. So, yeah. do, which makes me laugh. So do you I, put them up on YouTube and stuff? I have a lot of them up on YouTube. Yeah. And how do they do? You know, I uh, let me just say that I've never 
met the standards of the blurry parrot, which is what <laughs> I measure everything by. There's a blurry parrot I saw. It's 34 seconds long. Yeah. As nothing happens. Yeah. And it had like 650,000 hits. Yeah. I just thought, damn, yeah. if I can get closer to that blurry parrot, that's that's <laughs> the mark. <laughs> well, what is it? It's just a parrot? It's just, so I don't, you know, I wonder, are people hitting it just to get to something else? They're just looking at every parrot? I don't know why. <laughs> but, but, but somehow that damn blurry parrot had nothing going for it. It barely says a word. <laughs> and, it's, and that's your barometer for success on YouTube. I've never come close. <laughs> and I work really, really hard on my little videos. And so that, those are the top ones, the blurry parrot and Russell Peters. Those are the two big. I don't even know who Russell Peters is. He's only the biggest comedian in the world. Oh my God! Isn't that See? odd? No, but but no one in the states knows him. He's like an international phenomenon. Really? Well, I'm yeah. going to go home and Google him. Well, and I give mean, him hit number four billion. There you go. That's good. So I'm so happy you came out here. Meryl Marco is here in my garage. You made it. It's a great garage from Malibu. I did Malibu. That's nice. It is nice. It's got very nice weather. It, some of the time. Is it cooler down there? It's a lot. Cooler. I'm going to leave the air on for a while. I don't think that the sound is that intrusive. I think that if I turn it on and off, it becomes more noticeable. Or if when we talk, we go. <laughs> no yeah, that would hear it. And I, I got to be honest. I was a little uh, intimidated that you're coming over here. Really? Yeah, because you're you're fucking Meryl Marco. Yeah, but you're Mark Maron. No, no, you're like the. <laughs> what are you? Like? I was. I had a stomach ache coming over. No, here. you I did thought, not. No, yes, I did. I listened to your podcast. It's really brilliant. Yeah, I know, but you're like uh, the. You're I know, like, but I'm so amazing. Exactly, you're Meryl Marco. <laughs> I mean, you're like, uh, the, what would you say, the grand dom of comedy uh, writing uh, women? I wish. What are you talking well, about? Well, all right. I'll, uh, let's not me argue and bring myself down. <laughs> and you, you, I, I read parts of your new book. I got the galley copy. Cool, and calm, and contentious. Yeah. yeah, it's got the uh, the gal- the. Uh, please don't ever sell this or, or try to uh, 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 give it away as a gift or anything cover. And it might also have a lot of typos in it. I'm I'm not your mother. They go. I did, <laughs> I, I did not. That's right. I wrote about my mother yeah, in this. I book. did. I did not uh, go through it for typos. <laughs> so That's all know. my mother would have seen. Yeah, I I was. You know, there is the 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 chapters you told me I I should really look at because I didn't have but a day or two to read it. This thing about um, crazy mommies in relation to stand up comics. I mean, there's some shit in here, Meryl, that uh, was pretty. Uh, pretty right on man well i think about it a lot i'm very i'm very analytical just by nature yeah. and so whenever i hear st- two statistics that are the same i yeah. start making a list yeah. for some reason and then the list comes back when i hear statistic number three and over and over and over again i have you know i have mostly friends who are in comedy over and over and over again i kept hearing the saga of the disturbed mother First, I noticed it really, really prominently with women comedians. It's just about 100% with women who are compulsively funny. Yeah. And, uh, and I also noticed it's just about 100% for women compulsively funny who didn't have kids. Really? Just about 100%. And they're, they're, but their reasons for having kids were not connected to that? This was an observation you had? That they uh, no, I don't know whether... I don't think most people sit and analyze themselves the way I do or perhaps you do about why they did or didn't do everything but I always I always do I feel like it's part of the interesting thing about being alive to figure out what is right. at the core of everything but the sad thing is once you figure it out that doesn't mean that you're going to go any further with it you've just tracked it down and the the possibility of changing your behavior that's still 50 50 at best it is except for that there's also the theory that 
uh, once you've tracked it down, you just are not the same with it again. Right. Well, you that's just, good. You can't be the same with it again. You, right. You see it then you every can, time it's coming back at you. And you can beat yourself in a new way. You have defini- a well, definition. Well, you take a different route a little bit. You yeah. just can't really... That's unless true. Unless you really are, are determined to be self-destructive and uh, or ridiculous. And that's or you're the butt of your own joke. Right, right. Well, this is like, I'm just going to read this. For the, creati- for the creatively inclined, growing up under the thumb of a good old-fashioned, insensitive, dismissive, difficult, or in some cases, wholly unbalanced mommy can be a lot like growing up permanently enrolled in a graduate seminar in comedy. Shit. Well, I the reason I thought of that is is once I noticed that everybody had the screwy mommy it wasn't just me yeah um and i'm not sure my mom was as bad as most of the moms my friends had well if if moms aren't you know definitively crazy like if they're not you know talking to plants my mother talked to animals but that's not crazy my mother's very selfish that's not completely crazy she's got a perpetual eating disorder but still it's not these are yes they are what how far do you have to go to get the word crazy (laughs) Well, no, but I never looked at it as crazy. Well, an eating disorder right there is a, pro- a really big problem. Sure, sure, and the the selfishness and really selfish. Right. Is uh, these are these things don't add up in a good way. Somehow and they don't pay off either. By the way, somehow crazy mommy magically senses that by backing her kids into a corner, forcing them to feel alone and under attack in a world that doesn't make sense, she is also offering a hands-on daily workshop and how to assemble from scratch the most classic of all comedy characters, the disenfranchised, put upon little guy. Yeah, I, that's it's good. Thank it's you. So fucking good. I'm glad you liked it because I actually had to argue it into the book. It, it bummed out a lot of people who don't want to hear anything bad about mommies. Who? What you mean, publishers? <laughs> Are you serious? Well, it, uh, there, yeah, there was. I've had some resistance. Uh, but from th- people about it because it's it's not a positive look at mommies and mommies are the you know although it's not necessarily a negative look at mommies it's a look at it's just a a look at a piece of what i see to be reality but it's funny it's solid you know it's it's relative to your profession and to the people that are your friends i mean why would a publisher say that this is what your sixth book eighth your eighth book well, are they somehow drawing some line where it's like this is so out of out of character for you, Meryl? I mean, you know, this is too honest and dark. Well, it is more honest and dark than my usual stuff. Yeah, and, and that's just sort of where life has led me is getting yeah. more honest and getting dark. <laughs> As you get closer to the light, it gets darker. Uh, you know, I I was trying to write a book. Well, when you start doing anything, you just for me, you either start. Re- I feel like you either start repeating yourself or you start taking a route past what you did before and right. for me to go past what I'd done before made me feel if I wanted to emulate what I admired in others I needed to be more honest in general yeah well I think that this book like even that towards the end of that chapter like I, I'm sort of hung up on this chapter the, um, well, I'm glad you I'm so glad you liked it that makes me really happy it's great uh, and, it, and it speaks to me so this this paragraph too I'm just going to keep reading from your book and maybe we'll talk um, therefore, when people ask me, as they sometimes do, how to get into comedy, I have mainly one piece of advice. I tell them, try to be raised by a woman who, is, who has at least five or six of the following traits, which I culled from descriptive lists solicited from the people whose crazy mommy stories you just read. Uh, bright, clever, crafty, fearless, complex, artistic, resourceful, and inventive, while at the same time oblivious, controlling, manipulative, neurotic, tasteless, intractable, solipsistic, thwarted, repressed, inconsistent, critical, self-destructive, depressed, angst-ridden, furious, suicidal, violent, narcissistic, 
fearful, self-loathing, selfish, and sadistic. If your mother has some qualities from each of the two area areas, congratulations. Entertainment-starved drunks await you. You're a little, like, that's so right on. But your sense of stand-up, did you ever do stand-up? Yeah, I did, I did it for years. But yeah. I never, I never uh, really saw the path opening up uh, in a really welcoming way to hotel entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> Which is where it seems to seem that at some point you either diverge and get the hotel <laughs> contracts. <laughs> what do you mean? That, oh, you mean like performing in hotels or being yeah. in hotels all your life? Well, well <laughs> uh, performing at hotels. Yeah. That, I, 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 I sort of, I still like going on at clubs. Yeah. Clubs I, I like. Yeah. Depending on the club. I mean, and I really loved it when alternative comedy showed up. What I had greater difficulty with was before the Letterman show, I used to do just regular stand-up. And, and alternative comedy opened this door for me that was the greatest gift anyone ever gave me, which was you can bring a piece of paper on stage with you. And you had a sympathetic audience. Yeah. Audiences that responded to vocabulary choices. Yeah. And I thought, yeah. yippee. A little pa- somewhere in between a theater audience and a stand-up audience. Yeah. Where they were like, like-minded... They were expecting something interesting and new. And also the the bar had been changed in that you weren't supposed to be doing the same material you did before. Therefore, trying new stuff was a good idea. You didn't have Forced to have that you. one yeah. one liner that yeah. was so incredible. It didn't force you to do that. So let's I want to go over the history of you a bit because I you know, it would bother me if people didn't know who you were or where you came from. Uh, in reading the book, I learned some things about you. I had no idea that you, well, why would I? But you grew up in Berkeley, and you went to... Well, I didn't grow up in Berkeley. I just went to college there. But you grew up in Northern California. The latter part of high school. My parents moved a lot. Why? Uh, my father was a circus performer. No, he wasn't. I used to say that. It was going to be such a good story. I can just see I little Meryl sitting with the freaks you know, on I'm the... I'm so sorry that I don't have good stories like that. I used to try to just add them anyway. But now I have to say he was mm-hmm. a builder and he just had, you know, building the real estate market changed. And then we'd move where the real estate market improved. And then we, so I moved like six times. But where was your most developmental? I would place? say Northern California. But like in my mind, so you were in college in the late 60s, right? Yeah. So late 60s, Berkeley must have been a clusterfuck of really all fun. kinds of excitement. Yeah, it was. That's why I went there. I, I wanted to go to art school, and my parents weren't going to hear of that. Yeah. So I uh, had to pick, because it was inexpensive, the college out of the UC system that, uh, that had the most um, interest for me. And that, of course, was Berkeley, because it was, it was Berkeley. Yeah. It, it was more Berkeley then than it is now, although I'm guessing it's still a lot well, what, of Berkeley. What was, the, what was it like at that time? I mean, what were you walking into? What was Just happening? loopiness, just yeah. craziness. It was... Uh, it was a place where you were expected not to watch TV and to dress weird and to be a lunatic. And, and did I you? just loved that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was looking for. That's all I wanted. <laughs> Freedom. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what was the original... Uh, and I was an art major on top of that, just to make sure, just in case there was going to be any rules. Yeah. That, uh, what was the art? What were you doing? Uh, painting. You were painting. That's a hard art to be good yeah. at. Yeah. And who were your, like, what, if you were to look at one of your canvases, do you still have them? I do have them. I used to paint um, with a brush with one hair. I did really, really detailed, realistic kind of. Oh, really? Hyper, but they were getting funnier and funnier, so. So, like, more cartoonish or so? No, they were more kind of um, just super realistic um, is what I like. Uh-huh. And surrealism, I like. Uh-huh. I like Magritte. Yeah. And um, 
uh, right now I'm not thinking of all the great artists that I love and I'm going to kill myself later. Don't kill yourself. Like, like like Surratt or who, like who dots? Do you no, like, uh, I like the, I, I guess I like the surrealists, the people working in subject matter. And then uh-huh. the people in, like Vermeer. The yeah, people, oh the God. Dutch, the Dutch realists. Did you see the Vermeer the, exhibit? Ever? Anywhere? Yes, I have seen Vermeer exhibits. Like they had one that was in, uh, like it traveled, like with the girl with the pearl earring and all that stuff. Fucking amazing. Yeah, I really love art. I still go and see, try yeah. to stay up. I'm a big uh, Rothko guy, and I like the uh, uh, the uh, expressionists and the um, and I like um, I like a lot of stuff. My mother was a painter, kinda. She never made it as a painter. I mean, she ended up splattering sweatshirts as a business idea, but it, it started out with painting. Well, it's a business idea. Yeah. Was it a good business idea? I, I just know at some point, it towards the. Uh, Towards the end of things, uh, some, some phase. Like she went to, she did her master's in painting and didn't finish because she was intimidated, I think. And then I got a master's too. You did in painting. Yeah. And but I'm you, not your mother, am I? No, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I just I, I need to I, keep it, there'd have to be that. more about me in this book other than that one chapter. <laughs> <laughs> but but so you were never like you were never an uh, abstract person. No, I'm really not abstract at all. I'm sort of the opposite of that. Whatever that is, really yeah. concrete. Yeah. Yeah, and it has to be controlled. And I go and, in for details. Uh huh. I want to see some paintings now. Do you still paint? Uh, you know what? I know, I stopped painting. Um, I've been trying to start it again just for fun because yeah. I'm so competitive with it in my head. Yeah. That I never learned to see it as just enjoyment, although I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And then when I switched over and became a writer, I put it aside because I used to spend you know eight, ten weeks. 24 hours a day sitting there with a brush with one hair so yeah and now I don't have that patience was the any writing of that, has changed all that was any of that out of spite towards your parents uh, out of spite no to be a painter I mean uh, no I, you know I'm not sure what they wanted from me now that I think about it <laughs> I think that my, what my mother wanted from me is for me to be exactly like my mother but just a little worse <laughs> off in all ways so that I could always look to her as being quite a bit better than me and all the things I wanted to be you know it's, it's sort of it, it is definitely t- sad in a way that the two, cha- the two chapters I read about your mother that you could never really get through or get any of the sort of attention that you wanted that was pro, pro positive or supportive or anything. Well, she just didn't have that gene in her. But you know, it was a really that the, one of the reasons I wrote that piece about the crazy mommies and comedy is I started realizing what a great gift comedy is when you twist your personality that way. Yeah. The day I think I realized it most is the day that I repeated a really devastating thing that she said to me when I first showed her a script I'd written. I was moving down to L.A. to to be a TV writer. I was changing careers because I needed money and I was tired of being broke and stuff. And so I, I, uh, she wanted to see the script I'd written. Do you remember what it was for? Um, it was a spec script for like Maud. Yeah. Or Mary Tyler. Moore. I had written one for Mary Tyler Moore too. And, yeah. Um, and they were, you know, they were as good as I could make them. And uh, and she wanted to read it. And she she considered herself to be sort of the last word in all things grammatical uh-huh. and the English language and stuff. So. Uh, so I showed it to her really nervously, yeah. and I paced around while she read it, and I left the room, and I came back, and I left her. Finally, she turns to me, and she goes, well, I don't happen to care for it, but I pray I'm wrong. <laughs> and that was just devastating. I, just <laughs> I went into the next room, and then I took a shower, and, then, and I went to L.A. anyway, despite that. But it wasn't until years later when I repeated that on a stage and I got a huge laugh yeah. that I realized I'm not the only one who thinks this is weird. Yeah, it's, but she probably thought it was a compliment somehow. 
I mean, she thought she was giving you. No, she said, I don't happen to care for it. Right. Right. But she's like, maybe, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I, I, I it, there's some sense. No, of, what she thought was, and I think, it, I don't know if it's that whole generation of Jews. Yeah. Or it's just my mother and the others just like my mother with narcissistic personality mm-hmm. disorder or what it is. But I think she's thinking if the people who love you can't be blunt and rude to you, who will you hear it from? Yeah. As though it's a good thing that you that tactlessness is has got some kind of a an, is an achievement. And it's a lack of it's also a lack of empathy. It's weird because honesty can be used as a weapon so easily. Well, honesty makes no sense unless you I've learned Unless there's something constructive that you are aiming it toward. Just right. to say to someone, you know, you really look like a slob. Yeah. Isn't really going to do anything but make that person feel horrible. Right. It's going to hurt them. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you switch from uh, painting to uh, TV writing? I mean, what was... You know- well, I got a job teaching art at USC. I taught painting at USC for a year. And while I was at USC... Uh, dawned on me that my entire class that I was teaching, I taught freshman painting and drawing and life drawing. And uh, my whole class was were the children of people who were in show business. And we're all taking um, <laughs> classes in the... U- I learned that the USC Film Department was a big department right. on campus. Yeah. None of this stuff had dawned on me before. And, uh, and so I started auditing classes in USC. As a teacher, yeah. and then you were just sitting and in. And I got and super excited. It never had occurred to me that I could go into film or TV or anything, because at Berkeley at that time, that just seemed like a thing that was passed on from fathers to sons who paid somebody. And it just I didn't seem like a career choice, unlike today, which is it is. In yeah. A, everyone sees it as a And you can just put it on, your stuff on the Internet. You know, mm-hmm. you can't get paid for it anymore. That's the downside. Yeah. The good side is you can get a piece of editing equipment and just right. make it. But but then it was like still like three networks, a handful of studios. It was, it was I just pretty didn't know insulated how it was business. Yeah. And I'd stop watching TV when I was in college. Nobody watched TV at Berkeley. Couldn't have a TV in the late 60s. No, no way, man. Would. You'd be thrown out of there. Get out in the streets. Live. (laughs) (laughs) So I didn't even watch TV or anything uh, until I decided I was going to write for it. And I'm I'm not exactly sure. I guess that's how I decided. Did you love it, though? I mean, were were you able to appreciate Mary Tyler Moore and the things you wrote spec scripts for? I did not like Mary Tyler Moore. In fact, you want to know a really funny story is when I first moved to L.A., um, I was living on, I had met in a place, mattresses on the floor with a roommate. Yeah. She was working, uh, her uncle had gotten her a job as like an intern on a show on Chico and the Man. Yeah. And they got me a job interview at Welcome Back Cotter. And I went into this job interview having watched maybe one episode of Welcome Back Cotter. I just it was something I just didn't watch, wouldn't watch. So what is this like 72? 70 No, 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 no. Later? This is no, no, no. I moved to LA in like 78 or 79. So it's in so the mid 70s, right? It might have been the last days of No, I don't know what the timeline is. I'm just either. judging by like college. So you This was 79. Okay. 78, 79. So I I went into this job interview at Welcome Back, Cotter, and the guy said to me, do you like this show? And I thought that was a trick question. Like if I said yes, he'd go, well, then you're an idiot, and we don't want (laughs) to (laughs) hire Yes. (laughs) I was so on my own planet. And and what did you say? Uh, I think I fumfered. <laughs> I, um, well, you know, I, I, I didn't you just get say like Gabe's really funny, something like that. You know, <laughs> that's it your be nothing kid. without Gabe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay, so then what was the transition? Because I don't know if, if people know this, or a lot of my listeners know this, but you know what we're moving towards is that you became the original head writer for Letterman, correct? Yeah, and that 
that was on the, the original Hebron and the Night Show, and uh, we had a morning show. I before remember that. that. We did a pilot before that. I did three shows. So let's get to there. So how did how what were your first jobs in show business? I got a job. Uh, um, my first job, well, I, I came after that that job. I didn't get at Welcome Back, Cotter. I was sort of hanging around the improv, and not I doing, doing stand up. Uh, you did. No, I started doing stand up a little bit later. I, I sort of I was briefly uh, working with Andy Kaufman, who I met. Yeah. And, uh, Doing what for Andy? Well, he was claiming I was a writer, but there's no such thing as being a writer for Andy. No matter what anyone tells you, everything is coming out, was coming out of Andy. Yeah. You know, he was really on, talk about a no, guy on his did, own planet. Did not take ideas or, but like if well, he, he had all the ideas he needed and he would like people to say yes to them. You so know. you, did you work for him? Did you, I mean. Kind of. I was kind of helping him with, uh, in fact, I wrestled with him. No, I, I wrestled for him once. Yeah. Believe it or in not, in front of him, uh, he was doing a show at the Improv in the middle of the night called Midnight Snacks, where he had a desk up on top of uh, a platform, so that he was looking down. It was an interview show, looking down at his guests by a span of about three feet. The, the host sitting so way above the So this was when he was huge. I mean, it no, was this is right off of Saturday Night Live, though. I, he was right. huge in my mind. I yeah. never met anyone who was on TV. But he was like a popular. I mean, people. It was before Taxi. Yeah, yeah, it was before of all, all of that. And he, I was attracted to him because he reminded me of art school. Yeah. He was such a sort of an artist. It's like a performance artist like in, you know, yeah. in his own world. Yeah. yeah. Was he a nice guy? Uh, he, yeah. Well, you know, it's hard to say what he... He was so odd. He was a very odd guy. So Sometimes I'd talk to him and he'd be really fun to talk to. And then other times it'd be like he didn't recognize me. I wasn't sure if he had ever met me before. But did you get a sense that it was all intentional or that he was truly... you know, On his own planet is what I got the sense. Really? Really, I don't have an analysis. So he was, you were incapable of really, was he capable of conversing? Yes. Sometimes he'd be super fun to talk to, and then yeah. other times it'd be like he's so lost in his own thing that I wonder if he'd met me. So what made you gravitate? I think, did I make that up? Yeah. Me or yeah, did we, I was working for you, right? <laughs> so what made you gravitate towards the improv? I mean, and get into this world? Uh, I just... Uh, gee, you know, I'm going to have to... That one I can't exactly figure it out. Well, comedy was always the world I was heading for. I was I was just a wisecracking person since age one, I think. I you know, know, but, you know, the culture of stand-ups is very specific. Uh, well, I started writing when I was writing the spec scripts. Those were for comedies. And right. then there, after that was comedy. And you the know, improv was sort of a place to hang out. A place. And then I started thinking... I, so I got a job. Because I was hanging around, I got an agent. And then I... I uh, he got me a job. I, I got a job on. They were bringing, trying to bring back Laugh In. Yeah. The new Laugh In, which was the first job for Robin Williams. Well, as a writer? No, he was the uh, the one person in the cast that became somebody. It I wasn't was, Rowan and Martin. No, it was Laugh In had died and it was long dead. So Ruth Buzzy not in the picture. Nobody that you ever associated with Laugh In had anything to do with it, and it was so it was all new writers. It was George Slaughter trying to do it sure, again. Yeah. Uh, like a decade later, remember laughing, everybody? This will be even better. It's the right. new laughing. Right. So it was all new writers and a whole new cast. The only one of whom um, became anything was anything was Robin. Although Ed Bluestone was also in the cast. Do you remember him? I do remember him vaguely. Maybe I'm thinking of somebody else. He though. was a really funny, dark stand-up. Yeah, you should try Look, him. On is YouTube. he around? He's around. I don't remember him. I haven't seen him in a long time. Hmm. Yeah, he was one of. He was like before Stephen Wright. It was Ed Bluestone. Oh, really? 
dark, weird, surreal. Who, who were the other comics on the scene at the Improv at that time? Andy Kaufman was doing middle of the night shows. A whole bunch of the ones Richard that Lewis. are the, the old guys now. You Leno, know? Leno, and Letterman and Lewis. But wasn't Letterman mostly comedy store? Uh, yeah, he was mostly comedy store. That's right. There was a big split. You weren't allowed yeah, to do yeah, both. You yeah. had to pick one. Did Gary Shandling was around. Yeah. Did you go to the comedy store? I was at the comedy store. Yeah. I like. I was actually at the comedy store more than I was at the improv. But I was hanging around the improv, and because of laughing, I met um, Emily Levine, who's a stand-up. Yeah. Who I started thinking, well, I'll do stand-up. So right. I went to Monday night at the comedy store. Potluck. And then I also, yeah, it was the uh, yeah potluck night. Yeah. And I also was so frustrated working at Laugh-In where they wouldn't let the writers on the set. Right. So you, as a writer, you wrote jokes all day long and you'd put them in an out basket and then you'd c- they'd come back with a number on them, number 4,760, number 4,890. Uh, what does that mean? How many jokes had been submitted in general for oh the show. God. And then yeah. they were going to take all that and cull it and make a script. And we were sitting in these cubicles writing these jokes all day. And I, I never knew if anyone liked them, didn't like them. So I was driven to want to find out. I'm writing jokes all day long. So you might as well get up there and do it. Yeah, so yeah. I did. I, I started getting up there and doing it. And then through that, I met Letterman, yeah. who was a graduating senior. I was like an incoming freshman. Right. And he was a graduate. He was like big man on campus, him and yeah. Leno. At the comedy store. At the comedy store. They were the big guys. Yeah. And then he, he got the deal and he brought you in? Or how did that work? Well, he and I... Uh, started uh well no actually we we started dating we had the same agent uh-huh. that was uh, i think our initial conversation was oh you're with him yeah i'm with mm-hmm. him too and uh and then i started dating him and then i immediately became codependent and started helping him write his act <laughs> <Did he appreciate laughs> because that's a kind of a personality was did he defer well, to you though i mean were you i mean obviously you no he didn't defer to me but he is that, is that the right word did I he use deigned word? to use some of my jokes occasionally oh really but yes. i mean you were with him a long time weren't you 10 years as, as in a relationship relationship yeah and and a writing capacity for most of it i'd say so in in so you were just started out by writing jokes for them you guys were dating he was were, he was getting on the tonight show as a guest host at that point well he wasn't actually he did his first tonight show after i met him uh-huh and then he started getting the guest host gig sort of alarmingly quickly which was a big big deal at that time was that, that's a piece of history people don't, probably don't even know anymore either what right? the guest hosting thing well, the, I mean, he had a lot of guests, so Shanling, Brenner. Well, I guess we should say it was Johnny Carson's tonight Absolutely. show. Absolutely. <laughs> but it was a big deal because no one, like in this day and age, would ever think about giving up the seat ever. I mean, right. that, that's no. really interesting yeah. is how competitive and how diversified the market has become. That I mean, Carson was stable enough and he knew he was the king and there was such an yeah. intimate media landscape that he would take weeks off. And Joan yeah. Rivers, Gary Shandling, David Brenner, Letterman, Martin Mull, Martin Mull. Steve I mean, Martin. such a, a, a wide array. Of, like the, the, I mean, that is a pretty and we're people person. too, like Burt Reynolds. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Ca- like his favorite guests, he would let kind of run the thing. Yeah, and that happened a lot. I mean, David Brenner must have guest hosted that thing hundreds of times. He used to say how much in his press yeah. materials. But no one remembers that. Yeah, isn't that funny? So Letterman, so what, when you met him, was that always the direction he was headed for? Did he want to host a show, or did that something that dawned yeah. on him? Oh, he, he did. was always headed in that direction. In fact, the first thing that I remember thinking when I was when I watched him on stage at the Comedy Store is how much he reminded me of Carson. And did he model himself after that? I mean, I was think he, so. Oh, really? And because yeah, like, but he was a contemporary warp on it yeah 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 so okay so he gets this gig and then you, you know i think like the fact that you were with him during that because i vaguely remember that morning show the morning show was the really really 
flat out crazier version of Tonight Show. Right. Right. I mean, it was so bizarre. Was that like when he got that opportunity? Well, first we did another pilot. We did a pilot called Leave It to Dave for the NBC O&O's. That was a different talk show that was going to be a syndicated talk show. And it was a real misstep. Everything there was screwed up. Yeah. So by the time we got the morning show. Well, then that the misstep on the morning show was that it came to Dave via this. The then head of NBC was this guy, Freddie Silverman. Who, right? Yeah, I remember that name. He's a big guy. He was the the guy. Yeah. And he uh, he wanted Dave to do a show that would be like a young Arthur Godfrey show. Mm. Arthur Godfrey, a name that probably means nothing to anybody right. who, but he was he didn't mean anything to us either. We'd never seen that's the Arthur a, yeah, Godfrey that's show. That's like so the 50s, right? It was, and I don't even. I guess it was on TV yeah, too. Yeah. Certainly nothing He's I like, ever saw. But he was like one of the original sort of TV, you know, from radio guys, I think. And in a way, I think he's the guy who they were making fun of in A Face on the Crowd. Did you ever see that yes. movie? It's one of the greatest movies ever. Yeah. I recommend people. It's hard to find for some reason. It's weird. There's a couple of movies like that that are great dark comedies that for some reason they're not that accessible and a lot of people don't know them. Ace in the Hole is another one. The Billy Wilder movie about the media with Kirk Douglas as the reporter and the guy stuck in a hole in a mountain at a rest stop in, like, New Mexico, and Kurt Douglas does everything he can on all levels to keep the guy in the hole until the story blows up. Oh, my God, I got to see that one. It's a great movie. It had two names. Ace in the Hole was one, and then there was, uh, I can't remember the other name of it, but it's a Billy Wilder movie, and it's just one of those, like, facing the crowd. He's, it's Bud Schulberg, right? Yeah. And, and Elliot Kazan. story of uh, a country boy who makes it big in show business and has sort of a... The dark, megalomaniacal yes. insanity that ensues when he becomes huge. And how dark he becomes but because the, of the success. But the most interesting thing about that movie is when, because even at that time, when the politicians got involved, that was that was wild, is that you, you still had that, there was a corporate influence because he was sponsored, and then the actual you know, candidate for president was having meetings with him and the corporations to sort of carry water for him as a candidate. That, that shit was so far ahead of its time. Yeah, Anyways, that's true. I, I'm... That's rambling. going on now. It is. It, it's been going on forever, and it's just weird to see it in that context. Yeah. So, okay, so the morning so they, show. So they wanted a family, because Arthur Godfrey had a family on oh, his show, so, apparently. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. You know, that was an old-style vaudevillian kind of a throwback idea, I think, of a, a singer who came on every day and did a tune. Right, and, right, right. Like Lawrence Welk, like all those variety shows. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you can't just assemble a family. A family either is there, like Monty Python... You can't just assemble a Monty so Python this is for group. The, Those people went to college together. Like a yeah, yeah, like yeah. the people whatever Like the, Jack Benny had his people. Every yeah. you know so so did you assemble one? We did and it didn't really work out. Who was it? Well they were great people. Um, do you know who Valerie Bromfield is? She was a comedian, right? She was actually on the very first Saturday Night Live and she used to do a stand up with um, Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, and yeah. Edie McClurg. I don't I, oh yeah, 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 yeah. She still acts. She's, she's very funny. She's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And um uh, this guy Bob Sarlat from San Francisco. Yeah, he, he, well, yeah, Bob Sarlat was a big comic up there. Yeah, he was a really good friend of Dave's and uh, Rich Hall. Sure. Anyway, there were about five or six people. We got them all to move to New York. Yeah. And then it didn't work out because you, it turned out in order for them to make enough money to live in New York, we had to have them all on the show every day for them to make uh, enough in after it fees for them to get a large enough paycheck for them to be able to pay for their apartments. So it was a daily show, though. It was a 90 minutes a day live. L-I-V-E oh Is any live. of that stuff around still? I haven't looked on YouTube. I mean, It is. No, it's not on YouTube. It yeah. was in the closet in my... Uh, 
in my house for years and years, and I finally had it sent back to Dave, thinking, well, it's his legacy. He should and have did, it. Did he, was he? I wanted to bring it on the show. I went on the show a few times, and I wanted to bring it on on a big truck and just go, did you, guys, did you want this stuff? Or uh-huh. what? He didn't have it? <laughs> he didn't have it, though, before you sending it to him? No, I had it until about six or seven years ago, and then I just had it shipped to him. I just thought, I don't, it's taking up an entire closet in my house, and I don't know if it's needs to be refrigerated you know it's three quarter inch tape i don't <laughs> yeah. was he happy to have it you know i don't know you guys are are you friends no okay so <laughs> <laughs> that's that's that that didn't end well so uh so now i'm now i've lost my train of thought well we're moving towards the night show yeah so we are so uh, so that we we ended up having to lose the family which meant that five people we really cared about got shafted mm-hmm and uh, and that was a horrible experience. And we learned that what you have to do to do a show like that on a continuing basis is focus. It's enough work to focus it on one person as opposed to focus it on right. the individual needs of five people. Sure. And trying to manufacture this vibe. And it was a daytime show. So he was probably and doing right, weird housewife. Original material for five people, five days a week. It's, it's crazy. It's mind boggling. And, they, and really. you were doing like housewife segments, right? I mean, basically. No, we, I mean, we who weren't was... because they, they wanted us to. But uh, I would remember sitting at a meeting going. They're, they're saying, this is not what women want. Women want this and women want that. And I'm going, I'm the only woman here. How are you telling me what women want? Of course, me having no idea what women want because I was just... Yeah, you're a comedian. You didn't even <laughs> live in the real world. No. You're, you're <laughs> exactly. Hanging so, around nightclubs and doing stand-up. Exactly. Uh, so I, th- we got canceled. Yeah. <laughs> but we had a huge college following by then because the college kids will find you. We were just doing such Weird shit. odd things. Well, we were doing a lot of the same stuff as the night show but even more and weirder what were some of the segments that you put together that are still on the show well stupid petrix was on the morning show Uh uh-huh and um that was yours yeah but you know it was it was it was mine but it was came out of dave and i sitting around endlessly trying to think of what else can we do what else can we do what else and things that you could do many times in a row right what were some of the other ones uh, well, anytime we'd get any one thing that you could do, we'd try to spin it into nine things you could do. So out <laughs> yeah. of stupid Petrix, we thought of stupid human tricks. Yeah. We considered stupid baby tricks, but we were afraid there'd be child abuse that would come out of that. <laughs> you didn't want you, abusive parents coming out with their kids and yeah, look, dangling I'm, them <laughs> exactly. and swinging them around their head. And you know that would happen. Of course. And someone would get killed. Yeah. And that'd be the end of careers. Yeah, that would. Uh, well, we, th- we thought of, um, we used to do this thing, I don't know if they still do it, Small Town News, where we mm-hmm. subscribed to every small newspaper from every city in the United States and then looked for weird little articles that you could question someone about, and then it would end with a phone call. Was there any research process when you guys, like, because I know, you know, Dave sort of gets c- compared to Ernie Kovacs and t- compared to some of that yeah. more abstract TVs. Did you guys ever sit around and ponder that shit? Or yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah? Well, we did. In fact, I was just on that Ernie Kovacs thing. You know, there's a, they're selling a box set, and they had a little panel discussion uh-huh. the other night that I was on. So I recently rewatched the whole Ernie Kovacs of. Yeah. And, uh, and which is phenomenal. Phenomenal, and really even better for the growth arc. Yeah. It starts out, you watch the early stuff, and it's like, hmm, yeah, what did I like about this guy so much? By about a year later, it's whoa. And two years later, it's wow. Yeah. It's really just went for he got smarter and smarter and better and better which is really what you want to see in an artist i think so you were in new york and you guys got the night show and we went to the museum of radio and tv and we watched old kovacs and we watched and old steve did? allen yeah me and dave and jack parr too or no parr too yeah you know we know we um 
Yeah, what we learned in addition to the fact that Kovacs had thought all this really brilliant stuff up and Steve Allen had a really fun, adventurous spirit. And did you know, by the way, that Kovacs felt that Steve Allen was ripping him off? Uh, everyone thinks everyone. Really, I had no idea, but he probably was. Yeah, apparently he was. Yeah. I didn't. I, I assumed that some of that stuff came from Steve Allen, but Kovacs had it first, that man on the street stuff. That Oh, really? Yeah, making fun of the people in the audience stuff. The, I think there's a weird thing when something becomes public, even if it's format, that, that for some reason people don't think it's stealing after a year or so. They yeah. just think like, well, that's what the medium will bear and we can do our take on it. Yeah. And it just becomes like it's it. That's a new system that we can use. It's it's odd because after a certain point, when you watch Dave now, even there there, it becomes difficult to stack on new reusable bits that have not been done. It's true. Uh, well, we were really consciously eating up a lot of free space because we were under orders not to emulate the Tonight Show too closely. Um, so that was the mandate, Carson, or that was the manifesto when Carson you got, got the, to say who came on after him, right? And that was Dave. So the mandate was you can't have an announcer who sits down with you. No sidekick. No sidekick. And so that was why whenever Dave would come in and sit down, he talked to Paul. Paul would stay behind the. It would be Paul rather than an announcer. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Standing in the band <laughs> yeah, area, right, not right. sitting down at the desk. You right. Know? And then there wasn't supposed to do a topical monologue. Mm-hmm. And then there were those things that The Tonight Show was doing at the time. The Tonight Show was very circumscribed. It was pretty much a, a two-shot and a one-shot and a two-shot and a one-shot and then stump the band. I don't know if you remember those. Sure. So that, to me, to not emulate that, that to he me was like... He couldn't do a like, topical monologue? They didn't want him to do a topical so monologue. So what did that leave you with at the beginning? I can't we remember. We had something called opening remarks that were one or two little jokes, and then we do a piece. So we started doing written pieces. At the beginning of the show. And then again in the middle of the show. But to me, to not emulate the Tonight Show, and the, they, they were doing hardly anything. Yeah. So it was like the whole world of other things. Now, like when you, you started. You just do anything else. When you started. It <laughs> yeah, would be okay. The know? hallways, the people coming in. Everything. There's a, like, just think of all the things that aren't stumped the band. You right. could do any of those. And who came up with Chris <laughs> Elliott coming out of the floor? Oh, that was Chris. Yeah. Did, who, was the, <laughs> who was the original crew of writers? Uh, the original crew was George Meyer, who became a seminal influence on The Simpsons. That bit you have for, of his in the mommy's piece? Isn't that great? That made me laugh fucking out loud. I know. He's so great. I mean, that was insane. He's one of my favorite writers. Sun, art, trash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was laughing in bed. He's very, very funny. And, and um, I, we gave him his first job. He was, at the time, he was introduced to me by his two friends who I hired Tom Gamble and Max Pross, who write for everything, and had already written for Saturday Night Live by the time I hired them, but they referred to George, who they knew from college, as the funniest man in Arizona. Mm-hmm. So yeah. <laughs> he was doing biochemical research Wow! at the time. And you rescued him from that. Sent him into something so much more valuable than yeah, sure. c- cures for cancer yeah. or what have you. Well, you, you know? bring joy any way you can. You know what I mean? You do what you can <laughs> to help. And who else was on there? So it was uh, Tom and Max and uh, and George and Andy Breckman, who went on to create Monk. Uh-huh. And, uh, and a team named... Uh, Steve Weiner, Weiner and Carl Tiedemann, uh-huh. who I've lost track of, and uh, and my friend Gerard Mulligan, who was from San Francisco, who went on to stay with the show until, uh, like, last year when he retired. I remember that guy. Big guy, right? 
He was yeah. on the morning show even. Like he was he, my old pal from San Francisco. Right. And I gave him a job with Dave on the morning show, and he stayed there until forever. about a year ago. Yeah, I, I remember meeting him a couple of times. He's a lovely guy. So you guys were still in a relationship during the night show? Yeah. Well, we were in a relationship until like 88. Wow. But then I stopped. I had... Uh, what? It's a whole thing then. Yeah, it was a, it was a lot of... Tr- it was a big problem working together and... Being romantically being, involved? Yeah, that's a really... On not set? Not a good idea. No, it can't be. No, it's not on set. <laughs> <laughs> you were okay on set? It's just like... Yeah, yeah, but I mean, well, no. It's just not a good idea to... No, I, I know. To mix I, that stuff up. It's a really dangerous mercurial idea because it just is because the ego involved outside of a relationship and just what's involved in an intimate relationship then the egos of of actually working together must be insane well you know looking back i mean there might have been more merit to the working situation than there was to the personal one so it's really sort of too bad that we hadn't just become a working partnership and that we ever had the dating stuff simultaneously because that was less successful than the working part right now i mean uh, we we don't have to talk about letterman the whole time and we we can move on from that but um but what's curious? Uh, what what I want to know is that because he is um, like he was like he was my guy. You know, I I never really watched other people. Like when I was in college, that's when that started, and I was there at the beginning. I have a tremendous amount of respect for the dude. But you know, as he's you know he's gotten older, and you start. Do, do you like as somebody who knew him when he was young? And do you ever watch him now? No. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, I I used to I was watching clips and stuff, but I've uh, I've given that up for lent is it lent now i don't know when it is i just like i'm just curious about him as a as um like when you talk about comedians and you talk about you know what they come from um he's so isolated and seemingly so you know peculiar you know as a person and and now like he's just gotten very cranky and honest and and sort of like doesn't seem to give a fuck anymore and it's really kind of good it's probably better than it, it, it's been the well, best I season. sort of wonder if that's the truth mm. off camera I mean he really he used to always say ah, what do they want from us this isn't brain surgery and to me that subtext to that always was yeah but I don't care about brain surgery this is what I care about this uh-huh. is the only thing I care about yeah so, like very so he's really he's you know. he really really cares about making that show that show is his focus or was you know I can't speak for who he is now yeah but he was he stopped drinking before that show. He was focused on that show. He cared about that show working, and he was in constant terror that that show would be taken away. Right. Well, I still feel that he's like he's everything you hear about him. He's still like kind of on top of it and crazy about the show. But uh, it, it's just interesting when people who and I'm sure you've seen this a lot before that they have a TV persona, and as they get older, they you know it. it you know, they become more themselves because they can't help themselves. I think that's a a good thing that happens to all of us. Like even you were talking about in this book that you get to a certain point in your creative life where you're like, you know, why can't I just be fucking honest? Well, uh, I sort of feel like if you don't do that, then you become a cliche. Right. You start repeating and retreading and you sort of a caricature of yourself. Yeah. Clown. Exactly. And and that's the, the worst thing that could possibly happen. It's a stagnated, pool of pus isn't it <laughs> yeah it is definitely so now have you, you you did you date other comics uh no <laughs> that, that was it that was, <laughs> that was enough <laughs> and then you just switched to musicians yeah i guess i did <laughs> 
<laughs> now, have you, now in, in, you seem like somebody who's done a lot of work on yourself. And and you still find the, the humor in that process, like you know, you talk about codependency, you talk about this awareness around uh, your 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 mother and what you come from. There's part of me that thinks like I'm going to feel so good that I'm not really going to need to be funny anymore. No, I think it's a tennis game. Yeah, you know, I think that misery is what keeps you from like depression is really what keeps you from doing anything where you just have no reason to even try. You don't have the do- will. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, all that having a lot of self-examination gives you is a lot more language to use when you're making jokes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The don- the harm has already been done. You don't have to worry about protecting it. It's already the scars are deep and they're not going anywhere. Right, right. But you could at least, you know, make yourself smarter. Yeah. That's my <laughs> feeling. Yeah. And now seeing that you thought a lot about comics and yourself and where you come from and where your comedy comes from, um, do you... Like, I, if I really, and you've listened to the show, like, I try to figure out where, where it, it seems to me that the real war, yeah, outside of trying to understand the world, is, is some sort of, you know, there's a hypersensitivity to being a funny person. And there's, a, 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 for me, a, a kind of perpetual sadness that's right under the surface. That seems to be what I'm fighting against. Yeah. Do you have that? Uh, I have a... I have a perpetual programming to look at everything as a, a disaster waiting to happen. <laughs> Dread. <laughs> Dread, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and then, uh, and then I have a, um, an adjustment I've made to that that immediately finds a way to make a joke out of that. Right. So that's well, kind of a lovely adjustment. <laughs> now, now, after Letterman, I mean, you did go on to write jokes for other people, yeah? Uh, I just started writing. Well, you know what? I got really driven by wanting to hear my own voice. I mean, I I had gotten so used to having my voice adjusted by others that I wasn't sure what my voice was. And I I really knew how to write his voice, and I knew how to train other people to write his voice. Cause I'm, Letterman's. Yeah, I'm really good at hearing voices. I mean, I what, don't what was the instruction then? I mean, if you were if you were going to say like, okay, you want to write for Dave? Here's one, two, and three. Uh, well, I would say that the f- the first thing that I remember thinking was when I was watching him is that his attitude was, you, the audience, and me, him, know that that guy's crazy. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he was bringing the audience in, whereas when I was just writing jokes on my own before I started writing for him, yeah. I would often just write a fully warped world. Right. And you'd need to, to jo- find kind of, your way to that right. world and join me in it. But I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't unite with the audience. And I thought right. it was a smart thing he was doing. Right. So like, I huh, get a load of this guy. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Get a load of this guy. Yeah. Um, so that's what. It, that was it. Yeah. So, but after, <laughs> after working with him and then all the guys that I work with on the show and stuff. And then I wrote on sitcoms a bunch and all that kind like of stuff. Like what? Like what? Oh, I wrote a lot of episodes of things. I wrote on the New Heart show, and I wrote... Um, now, was he a hero of yours in any way? Yeah, he's great. And I working like him. with him? Yeah, I'd love to talk to him. Uh, because, you know, he was one of those guys, like, he was really a unique comedic voice. He was really unique. And you know what? He's one of the two or three guys who... Um, who reinvented themselves successfully over and over again. I was thinking it was, he had like three versions of that show on, like Cosby had several versions of the show on right. where they could take, they'd made such a strong comedic persona for themselves that they could take it and reset it again. And put it any, and put it in different situations. And George Burns did the same thing. Mm-hmm. George Burns was so such a great, strong comic persona that like at 90, he still knew how to turn 90 into a joke. He wasn't trying to pretend he was 
25, which is what Jerry Lewis sometimes looks like right. to me. Well, he was all, I thought Jerry Lewis was just perpetually 12. Maybe, yeah, you're right. It, what, 25 is really <laughs> too old. <wrong>. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you work with Newhart and. Uh, uh, well, I just wrote as a writer, you know, a freelance writer on a lot of sitcoms. Oh, and stuff. you were on staff. I was on staff. staff a few times on shows that came and went. And, yeah. And I got really obsessed with wanting to hear my own voice. So somebody offered me a column. I started writing, I wrote. I started writing some pieces for Rolling Stone, and a magazine offered me a column. It was called New York Woman, and myself and Wendy Wasserstein were both columnists. Yeah. And, it, and that was the first time I'd ever heard myself speaking like that. Yeah. And, and it was um, really exciting. And also that when you got a byline, it didn't go rolling by, and then the Right, show it was you. This is my point of view. And also and it, it was the same. As, it's the same as doing stand-up, only it's um, it's. Ex- Expanding it in all Or you don't have to wait for laughs and you don't have to worry whether or not someone's not going to receive you in that moment. Exactly. And you can go for gray areas or you can can modulate or whatever. You can expound. And later, when the alternative comedy scene came around, I realized that all um, all those years of writing columns made it perfect for... Doing alternative comedy, which is storytelling, you know, it's, it's storytelling. But now, as somebody that that understands, like you know, intimately both of those things, the difference between like a, a monologist who does straight stand up, or even somebody like Bob Newhart, who who actually also told stories, but yeah. but it, there was a different context to it. It wasn't so much, uh, you know, he was a persona, but you never got the sense that you were really hearing about his life. Yeah, although you kind of. Uh, yeah, I guess you're right. I and like with alternative comedy, there seems to be right. a self-centeredness that is uh, that is at the core of it. It's some place between jokes and talking to your shrink. Right, exactly, <laughs> and, or or just saying like you know I'm the center of this universe, and and there's a, there's a, almost a narcissism to alternative comedy, which you know right. I in you know I'm part of and I get it, but there's they're they're both very valid and they're both very you know. And I've also come to realize that you know I'm I'm very snobby about comedy. I either think it's really funny or I don't. I instantly you're either on my wavelength or you're not right but I also realize that there's a whole world of things that people are laughing at that you cannot not call funny they are funny they're making a big group of people laugh they're not funny to me right but they're definitely funny or a big group of people wouldn't be laughing so right well the, yeah because like as I talk to more and more comics like I my snobbery has has diminished in 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 light of what it really takes to be funny you know, like it, it no matter whether you like the jokes or not to do comedy and to make it work is no small fucking task. It's also <laughs> just if, if it's what you love. I mean, it's really yeah. I think it's just it's a thing that I just love. I love taking material and figuring out where the funny part of it is. It's yeah, just, I don't always know. It's like a do puzzle. You? <laughs> well, no, but I get assignments sometimes like lately I've written a couple of pieces for the Wall Street Journal of yeah. all things. And they give you a topic. And I love when people give you a topic and I go, okay, roll up my sleeves. There's got to be jokes here. What are they? You know. And, and how, what's that process start to, how do you do that? How do you well, work that out? Well, first I walk around saying I can't do it and I get really depressed yeah, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sit under a table part, for a while. It's part of my process too. Like, why'd they ask me to do this? It's not the right format for me. God, I can't do it. There's nothing funny here. I never thought there was anything funnier. And then you start to like assemble you, a jigsaw puzzle. Of, right. Do you do it from like, but do you start to like my only recourse when I I am dealing with that is like I can only speak for me 
So I start writing from there. I, yeah. It's very hard for me to just look at externals and say, like, those two things together are funny. And this, like, I have to be like, how? what is my reaction to this? But don't you also, like, I've lately, because I'm now on Twitter. Yeah. And I got on Twitter because I have a book coming out and they tell you, you know, get on this, get but on you that. You probably have a good time with it, though, I would imagine. Don't well, you? you know what? I After I got over the shock of, oh, my God, writing for free. I didn't want to go on it because I was used to writing for money. Right. After I got over that, I realized it's a really fun exercise to wake up every morning, look at the news, and figure out how to write three jokes. Right. That's how you, oh, you've got a system. You got, That's you're what gonna, I've been I'm going to do three. It's no, three. Well, at least I try to get at least three jokes, but I, ne- I wasn't doing that before that. I wasn't going through the news looking for jokes. And when you do, it's a kind of a fun little game to play. Like, oh, well, there's something funny there. I should try and do that because usually I just, you know, I tweet whatever. And don't you see that, like, right when you're looking at stuff, don't you immediately get a sense? I notice before I even write a joke and my jokes, of course, I don't know if they're actually playing or not unless I get a million retweets. Yeah. But but I get a sense right looking at the topic uh, joke here before I even even have read yeah, it. Well, I don't like, I should do more of that kind of exercise. I've become so fascinated with my small world and my life and my sort of newfound ability to be, um, influential. You know, well, yeah, maybe, but, but more like, you know, like it's okay to be me and I don't have to, like, I'm not angry about it anymore. So I just try to embrace it as selfish as that may seem. Like I've, I've kind of shut off a lot of the outside world. Well, that's a great thing. I guess. Isn't it? Yeah, it makes me feel better. But then people are like, well, why don't you have anything to say about that? I'm like, because I, I didn't even pay attention to it. <laughs> and like I used to be responsible for that stuff. So that's a little weird. I'm wondering when I'm going to tilt back into having opinions about you know bigger issues. Well, you know, it's the province of being 22 to just to be soaked completely in misery. I mean, they get to own that. Yeah, they do. I'm not <laughs> meeting a lot of miserable 22 years old. They seem a lot more confident and together than I was. Really? You mean, yeah, yeah, definitely. Young I guess people. I'm just looking at relatives. Oh yeah. Oh well, that's good. At least you have them in your life. But it's I've always I think that like to, like what we were talking about at the beginning of the interview to have all these resources you know at your fingertips to express yourself you know you, you know technologically efficiently in so many different mediums without having to re- rely on anybody is is a great thing. It's great until you f- try to figure out how you're going to earn a living at it. That's, that's a dilemma they're facing that used to be sort of figured out where you would get a job. Yeah, you would you would you'd have to make the cut and be part of the business. Now you can you can find a lot of ways to have your work out there. Of course there's the downside of that. I mean I I see stuff people put up and I just think I'm so glad when I was 23 I had no way to just spout myself. off in front of everyone. I just <laughs> I had to keep my mouth shut. I had a lot to say. Yeah. Well now let, let's I want to address this a little bit only because you you know you've done so well for yourself and you've been so influential in in a lot of big things. Um comedy wise that you know as a woman and yeah you know, i know you're friends with a lot of uh, like a lot of the women you brought up but did you ever feel that you were you know thought of differently or that it was more challenging in and in, in your particular journey well uh yeah you know yeah it was there used to i've thought about this a lot um like because a lot of people ask me like why aren't there more women comedians there's a like, lot now. i know there's there's tons now but still tons. there's this and idea they all seem to be doing pretty well and a lot of them are really really funny great yeah, there's a lot more than when I started. Yeah, there's a lot more than when I started, and a lot of them just writing funny 
Twitters and blogs and stuff. But what too, was the them. landscape like when you were writing for for Letterman and doing these TV shows in terms of women? Well, what there used to be was what used to be called tokenism. Yeah. Like when I got a job on the new Laughing. Yeah. Um, I was supposed to be an affirmative action hire. Well, it was th- that's what was going on. Is yeah. They would think that they needed, needed to hire two people, which later went on um, was pointed out to me when I was talking to Nell Scovel about this, uh, who's a funny writer, um, that. That the days of we well, never would have thought that uh, tokenism would have been the good old days. They went from having to hire two women to just going ahead and hiring no women. Right. Lately, right <laughs> now there seem to be. I understand there's one woman on this show and one woman more in sitcom. I think than in uh, than in the late night shows. They just gave up hiring any women in the late night shows. I think they've got one on this one and one on that one. And and do you think like I I just like I'm I don't tr- know what that is. Yeah, well, the, for, in the eighties, like women were characterized as as, as uh, you know always talking about certain women things, and that you know stand up has been you know you know primarily male for a long time. And you really can't be hearing about women's things because there's so few women in the world. <laughs> <laughs> don't but be, the, don't be weighing everybody down with those well, the, women's. Well, things. there was this idea in the '80s that like women are going to talk about their periods. And, yeah, and oh, you don't want that. No, oh, oh, you yeah, can't you have can't have that. that. <laughs> well, do you remember? I remember a time when I was growing up when they wouldn't have women on the radio. They said women's voices were unpleasing to people, and they would never have. There wasn't a single woman announcer on the radio. Yeah. Yeah, but things are like definitely different now. Well, uh, so the, in the period of time when I was coming up, we had Elaine Boozler, yeah. who was the top I gotta of get everything. Her in here. I got to write her, and she was always really great and fantastic. And the amount of shit she was taking, unbelievable. The word that is being used about her, and she was at the top of the game pretty much for women. Then, in my opinion, yeah, she was writing political jokes. She was writing personal jokes. She was writing every kind of joke that she could yeah. make work was that she was threatening. Threatening, she's like five feet tall, and she'd wear a little dress, you know, yeah, yeah, and you yeah. just go, so the threat of this, this like short little woman making you laugh is, um, that threat is, what is that? <laughs> it's almost jihadist or something, you know, what is that? So it's, it's interesting, it was really a kind of old boys network, and there was an idea of, of how to manage well, just that word threatening got thrown around a lot, that they wanted women, if you're going to be a woman, and, and I remember thinking when I was doing stand-up in that period, what do I do to not be threatening? Like, you know, do should I wear pants? Should I wear a dress? If, is it too threatening if I do this? If so it's it was a, in your head. Yeah, you yeah. would just, and I wasn't sure what what the threat was, so I wasn't sure how to counter it either, you know, yeah. it was... <laughs> How do I dewomanize myself enough to not be well, intimidated? Yeah. Or to these you want to get want to be you don't want to be dewoman. You have to dewomanize yourself so that you're not doing the woman's topics, <laughs> but you don't want to be so womany that you're threatening. So, How, who's may had the most impact on you, you know, comedically or otherwise in your career in terms of weirdly said. the two would be I would say um, my two heroes, my three heroes would be. Uh, Ernie Kovacs and Robert Benchley and Dorothy Parker. Wow. I go back to them over and over again. Now, they are now, so brilliant. Why, I don't know who Robert Benchley. Robert Ben, you know the Algonquin Round Table. Oh yeah, right, okay that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now was, his son is Jaws, right? Or that's Peter. That Benchley. was his grandfather. Uh, grandson. grandson. Okay. Grandfather. Right. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. They. He was a a witty writer of from the 30s and 40s, and and the thing that's amazing to me about his writing, I was really studying him at one point years ago uh-huh. and rereading him and rereading him and rereading him, is that. In an entirely different time period, he was catching and getting every weird, twisted, interesting joke 
so that it made 1938 or 1942 or 1945 or whatever year that was seem like yesterday. Really? Which is really yeah. interesting to me. That Timeless jokes. Rare. Yeah. And Dorothy Parker is just amazing. She's, yeah. Every time I read her, I think, wow, how'd she do that? Yeah. How did she do that? Yeah. I, I don't, I'm not as, uh, I don't, I'm not that literate about that period. Well, I, I'm not, I'm sort of, I should take on some new heroes, but every time I no, look at them, great. I'm always kind of amazed at them. Those are great. So They're the, worth looking at if you have never seen them. So the new book is Cool, Calm, and Contentious, your eighth book. Yeah, and it's personal essays, and there's, uh, there's a piece I'm going to hell for in it that where I actually went through my deceased mother's diaries. And, and I know, I thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> but would you have done it had you found what you were looking for? I don't want to tip it too much. I don't want to spoil um, I, well, you, what it. Well, I'll just tip it. Um, when my mother died, I had a really co- contentious relationship with my mother. And uh, when she died, I went looking through her diaries thinking, well, I'm going to find out here what the missing piece was. She was a seriously angry, depressed woman, and I never. she would never tell me what she was so angry and depressed about. She would just tell me that the things I was doing right then, whatever they were, were the reason she was so angry and depressed. So yeah. it was always me that was the cause of everything. Right. So, uh, so I went looking for some actual reasoning, and I never did find it because she wasn't self-examining. But what I found were these diaries of hers where she complains about every single country of the world. She goes from country to country to country to country <laughs> with my dad. They were <laughs> widely traveled. Yeah. And just has something terrible to say about, um, I don't think a single, well, the only country that escaped is she liked Japan. Uh, yeah. It was nice and organized and <laughs> everything pretty. And but didn't that tell you at least that it wasn't about you? Uh, well, what really told me it wasn't about me was when I found that she had criticized Charles Dickens. That there was, and <laughs> I found him. an old textbook of hers from college. And in the margin of Oliver Twist, she had written, not one of his best works. I was not impressed. <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought... What did I expect from her? Yeah, the ego on that. I mean, the, the, oh, that's unbelievable. She's flicking off Charles Dickens, and I think she's going <laughs> to like my work? Jesus. <laughs> anyway, I, I wouldn't have printed all this stuff if she were alive, certainly. Yeah. But the other thing was I was trying to think of what do I like in other people's books. Yeah. And I like when people are exposing their take on life and letting me see how they adjusted to living in the world really really honestly i'm always looking for that yeah so i thought well what the hell let me do it this was the world i grew up in why should i protect my world and these elements when i like it when other people do it so i went ahead and and she did it and if you know if there's an afterlife and my mom's waiting for me there i'm gonna get so beat to shit in the afterlife i know (laughs) but you've resolved some of the stuff that uh, that caused you all this tourist in your life well i found it i learned to find it funny right so then maybe if you there is an afterlife you can just laugh in your mother's face yeah well we hopefully will have separate uh apartments (laughs) in the afterlife we're living together again oh my god they don't put the whole family unit back together again do they i i I think you can make it up. i don't know if there's any specific rule book on that in terms of how it plays out maybe in the kabbalah or something i I don't know maybe there are living arrangements documented for the afterlife but it's in text that i've not even come close to reading Ah. but i I wish the best for you in the afterlife and that you don't have to live in the same house and I hope you're not living with my mother either yeah me too good talking (laughs) to you Merle you too that's it that's our show Uh, I'm going to try to resolve the air conditioner issue I'm I'm thinking about refrigerating the garage the next time it's hot 
Uh, go to WTFPod.com. All kinds of new gift stuff for the Christmas holidays and the holidays that you celebrate, whatever that may be. There's cool swag bags, tote bags, new CDs, new posters. Again, Neptune Theater, Seattle, November 25th, Black Friday. Bring a little cash so you can buy a coop poster. They're going to be beautiful. Very few, very few, limited edition, signed, that whole thing on good paper, poster paper. Uh, get the apps. I'm not sure a lot of you realize, but there's about 230 episodes of WTF. And if you've only been listening on iTunes, go to WTF Pod, get yourself hooked up with an app so you can get the all the back episodes. Arlington Draft House, Arlington, Virginia, December 2nd and 3rd. Yes, that's right. Do it, DC. Boomy, come here, Boomer. Come here, Boomy. Come on, say goodbye. Boomer. Boomy. Come here, buddy. What's going to take to get this cat in here? Come on, man. Boomer. Nothing. He's just in here two seconds ago. I got to clean out my system. Man. I got to start exercising again.